What is going on, everybody? Happy Sunday for most of you. Hopefully it's still Sunday. If not, happy whatever day of the week it is. It has been an eventful day for me. I have been to the store for three hours getting equipment to start podcasting. But here we are. And with that introduction aside, welcome to the podcast, everyone. My name is David. This is Free From Missing Out, a podcast about living in a connected world. That's about all I have for it. We're kind of going to be on this journey together as we go through the podcasting journey. Yeah, that's what we'll call it. But in all, back to the seriousness, I am going to be figuring this out. It is going to be a podcast about living in a connected world, how it's changing everything around us from politics to social media to how we set our goals and define our milestones. But to this episode, we're going to talk about the quarter-life crisis, that emotional breakdown that we all seem to be having where we want to quit our jobs, live in a van, and travel the world. Or, I mean, that's just me. But it is a serious issue, and it stems from a bigger problem, I think, and it has a long history. So we're going to get into all that now. Without further ado, I already said that, but Cue the cheesy intro music that I found online. All right, so the quarter life crisis. What is the quarter life crisis? Well, it seems to be this phenomenon. Phenomenon. Phenomena? Phenomena? Whatever. Seems to be this thing among millennials where we're all unhappy, our jobs don't mean anything anymore, we're not fulfilled, and it's a stressful breakdown similar to that of the midlife crisis, that classic scenario where the 40-year-old man goes off and buys a Porsche and you know has a breakdown and wants to feel young again. But it seems to be different. And that difference is clearly manifested when you look at the history of the midlife crisis. So let's examine the midlife crisis and we'll take that back to the quarter life crisis. What is a midlife crisis? I mean, we've all seen the you know classic stories and the cheesy things about the buying the Porsche and driving home and you're dating a younger woman now and you want to be cool and you start dressing different and that's the classic 40 year old man going through it. But it really comes down to the actual definition that I was able to find is a missing of self identity and confidence. And I think that definition is so concise and so perfect at the same time that it really does summarize not only the quarter life crisis, but also the midlife crisis. So let's break it down. Missing self identity and confidence, self identity is it that you don't know who you are anymore or that you're missing that purpose and where that stems from? And I think as you go look at the midlife crisis, you know, your late thirties, early forties, your self identity is changing. You're no longer on the upward rise up the mountain. You're, you're starting to decline. You're, you have to come to grips with your mortality. So Elliot Jacques coined this term, the midlife crisis, in 1965. He was a doctor who studied medicine at John Hopkins, and he coined this term after doing a study on employees' time and how it differed on different management levels. 
it was kind of funny because he did end up finding this term and coining it after the entire study. And the study wasn't directed towards the midlife crisis and different stressors. It was directed towards how different employees' perception and use of time correlates to management levels. Different level managers have to perceive time differently. And that lower level people typically can perceive time and they plan things on the weekly or biweekly basis, while management usually can see a timeline of a couple months and then upwards all the way to the CEO can see a timeline of the next 10 years. And that's the timeline they plan on. And as a byproduct of this, he was studying time and how employees perceived it. And he noticed an abrupt change in their lifestyle and productivity when they started hitting this age around 35, 40 years old. And it manifested in himself as well, but it was attributed to that dealing with mortality and that your perception of time not only changes as you move up management, but it also can change as you go through life. And that as you pass that threshold of you know, 35 to 40 years old, you're not seeing the end as being so far away anymore. It's much closer. So the changes he started noting as they came to grips with this mortality manifested themselves in terms of trying to remain young. So people became concerned suddenly with health and appearance and becoming more sexually active and trying to show this enjoyment of life that they perceive themselves to be lacking. And he noticed this in himself as well. And obviously this changed from person to person. Not everyone goes through it the same way. But this is what he coined as the midlife crisis. That does sound familiar to what people are going through today. You know, human problems have always been human problems. And seeing people trying to connect with their youth is no different today than it was back then. But it's interesting to examine the time period in which he released this book. He released this book. It's called Death and the Midlife Crisis in 1965. And at that point, the average life expectancy was around 70. And so it was actually really around your midlife that in your 30s or 40s, people saw that they could drastically change their lives. Like it wasn't too late to missing out on. And a lot of things were changing. It was getting easier to change your life because a lot of those barriers that has existed before were going away. It was the time of the civil rights movement. Women were starting to go to work in much higher numbers. And this was really changing the idea of the middle class. At the same time, divorce laws were changing divorce rates started to climb. It seemed to be a much more freeing time. And as things became more free, it changed the social fabric of how people interacted, how they saw their lives. They weren't so encased in such a mold that they felt like they needed to make these drastic changes. Soon after he published this book, the term and the, yeah, I guess the mystique around the midlife crisis became a social norm. And it got to the point where it wasn't just an academic research paper. It became part of pop culture. So in her book, The Middle Age Crisis, there was a writer called Barbara Freed. And it actually was claimed at that point that the crisis is a normal aspect of growth in that it was something that everyone was destined to go through as they went into ages of 35 and 40. 
this also brought in the definition. It went from the original definition of this perception of time and mortality to something much more general that could be any inner strife or stressor that was going on in your life. It, it could be seen that you could have a midlife crisis because you've done everything that you've wanted to do, but that left nothing. And it could be seen as you have done nothing and it left everything. And both of those events were equally likely in everyone's mind to cause the midlife crisis. <laughs> the, the twisted and funny aspect of this was that the midlife crisis was seen as almost a perk and it was seen as exclusive something that only upper class people were going through because they had the luxury to look and do introspection on themselves and determine what they were lacking people part of the lower half of society they were deemed to not have the time or money to worry about self-actualization or looking at one's feelings or stressors and this actually got so bad that at one point Management theorists, because apparently that's an occupation, they had urged so many companies to be cautious and sensitive to people's stressors they were going through in relation to the midlife crisis that in 1972, the U.S. government task force actually issued a warning that the midlife crisis may be causing an uptick in the death rates of middle-aged men. But obviously, as with any social pop culture norm, not everyone is on board. This didn't manifest itself for a while, but around the 1990s, there was a big movement against the midlife crisis, really questioning its validity. Was it actually happening? One of the main data points that was used for this, it was taken from the, a study called the Midlife in the United States, uh, coined MIDAS, which began in 1995. Now, this study touched on a lot of unrelated points. It was really a large analysis on it, well, what it says exactly, midlife in the, in the United States. And this touched on everything from social constructs to sexuality to relationships to job satisfaction. It really touched on everything, but it had so much data in it that people were using it to refute the validity of the midlife crisis. And this was being done in a way that I think is best exemplified by this woman called Margie Lockman. So she was a member of the original Midas team. And she collected data that showed that people who were going through a midlife crisis, about 10 to 20% of them were valid, that they actually were going through a stressful crisis-like event, but that even those people and the other people were quote unquote happy in that they were at typically healthy points in their lives. They had busy social lives and they were making the most money that they had in their lives. And so there's no reason for people to be anything but satisfied. In addition to this, she also cited that over half of the people, according to her, that stated that they were having midlife crisis were quote unquote crisis prone. They had had other incidents in their you know, earlier in their lives, and also we're saying that it's related to a specific life event, um, such as decreased health, job loss, divorce. So that was the catalyst that sparked the crisis. And this led to the argument, I presume, she doesn't say this, but that it was not directly related to their age and their mindset, 
but it was just like any other stressful event. It was a singular event related to a single causality rather than a perceived lack of youth or fulfillment. But it does make the question, does that mean it wasn't real? Just because one event caused what was perceived as a midlife crisis, does that make the rest of it fake? Does it make it any less real for the person going through it just because it was caused by a singular event rather than a gradual spiral? I'm not sure. And I'm still not sure about how this connects to 20-year-olds. What do 40-year-olds in the 1960s to 1990s going through their brush with mortality have anything to do with us? You know, the 20-somethings who are just getting into adulting, just learning how to do our taxes. You know, there's no mortality on my timeline right now. But when will that come? If it's not mortality, what's causing the strife in our lives? Because I would be the first to argue, it's a very real thing. The quarter-life crisis is real. You might not be going through it, but other people are. I've talked to friends. I've talked to me being myself. (laughs) But in all seriousness, it's definitely a real thing. So if it's not caused by this brush with mortality that the 40-year-olds were facing, what is it? So let's revisit the two, the definitions of the midlife crisis. This missing of self-identity and confidence. How is that connected to us? So I started looking into this and it led me to an interesting point. So first off, I'd like to quantify that I'm not crazy. So there's an article written by Market Watch, and it was a survey referencing about a thousand or so young professionals. And six in 10 of them reported they are suffering a quarter life crisis or, quote, an intense self, an intense period of self doubt and insecurity that is causing them to question their life choices. So I'm not crazy. But it still begs the question, what is it? Why are six in 10 people going through this at such an early age? It used to be reserved for our parents. Why is it now on us? So in the same article, they started to break down the reasons of what was causing the stress. And this varies across the board, but it was everything from a quarter of people saying they were struggling to find the right job Another one in five are worried about buying their property, you know, getting that first house or piece of land. And then, you know, 25% of them were worried about being in the right relationship, finding love. So this led to a comparison that they don't know where they are in their lives. And this is what was said by Dr. Gail Saltz. She's a psychiatrist and author of The Power of Different. It's a link between disorder and genius. So she says that the life is so difficult for people in their 20s and 30s because we are making choices that we perceive as being permanent decisions, that we don't see them as being changeable. So why? Why don't we perceive our lives as being changeable when they're ours? Why are these changes that we're making and these choices that we're choosing, for lack of a better word, so defining for us? So she also went on to say that people in their 20s, 
this is a quote, have unreasonably high expectations, what they should be earning, how they should be loving, and how they should be enjoying every second of what they're doing. So what caused this? Why do we perceive the world like that? It's leading me towards an answer, and this is where we get into the fun part, in my humble opinion, which is my humble opinion, which is obviously the best opinion. But it seems to be connected to the rise in how connected we are as people, that we perceive our own lack of accomplishment by comparing it against other people's perceived accomplishments. The reason we try and benchmark ourselves of what we should be making, where we should be in our relationships, how far along we should be in our jobs, is only because we have information available to show us what other people are doing in those areas. If there was nothing to benchmark yourself against, there would be nothing to fall short of. Now, I can see how that could be argued as we would make no progress because if no one could benchmark themselves, then they would have no reason to progress as long as they're happy. But I don't believe that. I don't believe that humans and we, being millennials and 20-somethings, I don't believe we only strive for success to satisfy other people. I think there is an internal drive of bettering yourself. But I do think we set expectations too high because we want to meet what other people have already met. And this leads me into something that I find myself saying way too often recently, of the grass is always greener. We look at other people's lives through these lenses of social media, through LinkedIn and conversations over a beer, and it's all perceived as great. And I see this especially in my current job. You know, we have interns come in every summer, and we have much different groups in our company. And there's always a comment of, oh, I I really want to go to that group. You know, I've, I've been here two weeks, but I want to go there. Their jobs look so much better. Look how much more money they're making. Look at all the cool things they're doing. Why isn't everyone there? And that's the question you really need to focus on. Why isn't everyone there? If what you are looking at is so great, why are people leaving it? You say, take Google as an example. And there's plenty of articles out there on why working at Google sucks. You can find a bunch of blog posts about it. But it comes back to the core issue. I think a lot of us, if we picture Google, that's an ideal company. That's where we want to go. We could take slides into work. We could bike around a magical campus where everyone wears shorts and flip-flops. But people still leave. And if we're assuming those people aren't stupid, what's why is there a reason to leave if it's such a magical place? And this comes back to what I'm getting at, is the grass is always greener. By looking through the lens of social media and posts and Instagram, you're not seeing the real life these people are living. And you take any example, you can take YouTubers, influencers. The world is not how it's perceived through a post. And as we benchmark ourselves against those, as we see, oh, so-and-so is traveling again already. Their last post was traveling. So... You don't know their situation. They could have taken two weeks off of work, but they have none for the rest of the year. They could be traveling, but they're in debt because they can't afford to travel. My point is is that we don't know. And by benchmarking ourselves against other people, we only set ourselves up for failure. Now, 
taking a step back from the whole social media rant, I mean, I could talk about that forever. But I think part of this also goes back to the stigma about mental health with our generation. I don't think it's taboo anymore to talk about mental health and saying that I'm not okay or I'm stressed out. I have anxiety because I'm not where I want to be. I'm not happy in my relationship. I'm not happy in my job. I need a change. It's much more accepting of that than it used to be. And I think even if you look back to what we talked about earlier with the 1960s and 70s, people weren't okay with it. It was part of, it had to be introduced as part of pop culture and it was had to be introduced as part of life rather than a problem. So instead of addressing it as an issue, it was addressed as a norm. And by making something a norm, you take away the severity. If we say something's a norm, no one cares anymore. You're going through it. I'm going through it. It's not a big deal. But I think the quarter life crisis is a big deal because it really shapes how we're going into the future. If millennials really are so caught up that all the decisions we make now are set in stone, then we're doomed. Your 20s should not be the point in your life where you're setting your life in stone. We know nothing. I barely could get this podcast working, let alone plan the rest of my life. And if we're so focused on the punishment from our decisions rather than the potential gain, we only set ourselves up for future failure. Everything has a chance to fail. The biggest risks in life have to include failure. This podcast might fail. I hope it doesn't fail after episode one. And the fact that you're listening is a good sign. But it could still fail. But it doesn't matter because I enjoy it. I'm not trying to do this with the point of driving immense success. It's something I told myself I would do. I think this leads right into the most important message I want to drive through this podcast. And little did you know you were getting David's free therapy session along with your podcast subscribe. But everything I say obviously is something that I believe and something that that comes from my personal opinion. But there has to be a call to action from this. It, It can't just be this morbid, you know, grayish hue of the world where all we see is that we're comparing and comparing and comparing and we're never going to do anything. So what is the call to action? How do we fix this? How do we fix the midlife crisis? Sorry, the quarter life crisis. I don't know if we can fix it, but we can each do our part to lessen its impact on us individually. And I think this part of it comes back to doing what you want to do. And I know this is a hippie-ish way. Let's we can address that right now. I know it sounds like I'm just saying, go quit your job, you know, tell your boss to fuck off and then leave the door and go buy a van and travel across the country. First of all, that's my idea. Don't take it. Second off, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean you have to upend your entire life to combat a midlife crisis, but it does mean analyzing what you actually want to do and seeing if that actually compares to what your goals are. Thinking about life with the end in mind is sometimes hard. It makes it hard to address the current state you're in. So if you want to do something, do it. It doesn't mean you have to quit your job, but let's say you want to travel, go travel. Let's say you're interested in you know, coding, but you're currently not in coding. You're in accounting. So 
leave. Start upskilling. Start doing research on coding and do it. And if you find it like me that you can't hold yourself accountable, that you procrastinate like I did on this podcast for weeks and weeks and weeks, because I was idly mentioning it to my girlfriend where it's, I'm going to make a podcast. Okay. Next week. I should really make that podcast. Okay. Finally, it's, I'm going to make that podcast. No, you're not. What? Why don't you think I'm going to do it? Because you haven't done it. And this is where it comes to accountability. If you're going to do something, my biggest advice and what I found helps me is tell people, tell your friends, tell acquaintances, tell your parents, I'm doing this. I'm going to make a podcast. Because you want to know what the good friends will do? They'll follow up. And when you tell them again, two weeks later, I'm making a podcast. They'll follow up questions will come. It'll be, when is it coming? Why haven't you started yet? That's what drove me to make this. So if, for those of you listening who helped me make this, thank you. Well, we'll see if it succeeds. If it fails and I embarrass myself, then fuck you. But until that point, thank you. But I think that's enough for today, the first episode of Free From Missing Out. Thank you all for tuning in. I'm getting the rest of my social media in order. So right now, don't worry. You're not missing out on anything that will come. But I appreciate you all listening in. Feel free to subscribe. I'm going to try and keep this on a weekly basis. And we'll continue to talk about issues that I think are important for our generation. But with that, have a good one and peace. Peace.